right, good morning, Veritas. How are we doing this morning? All right, sweet. My name's Ryan. I'm on staff here. I'm excited to bring the word to you today. Uh, and this morning, we are zooming in as we're kind of winding down on our uh, series on the Apostles' Creed. We are zooming in on the one phrase that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Okay, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And when we say this, when I hear people say this, uh, my mind is drawn immediately to a story out of Luke 7 of Jesus during his ministry. Right? It's a really cool story. Let me kind of set the scene for you a little bit. So Jesus has been invited to dinner. He's been invited to dinner at a house of a very religious person, a Pharisee. And he brings his religious Pharisee buddies with him. And Jesus brings some of his disciples with him. And they're at this dinner probably trying to pick Jesus' brain or to make themselves look good, just kind of have a good elite religious conversation, if you will, and an unexpected visitor shows up, a sinner. A woman described as a sinner, probably a woman of the night, shows up, and she does something pretty unexpected, okay? She doesn't just kind of take a seat at the table and ask for food and drink. She actually goes right up behind Jesus and weeps. She starts drenching Jesus' feet with her tears and using her hair to wash the tears and the dirt off of his feet. And to to build on that, she takes perfume, expensive perfume, out of a jar and anoints Jesus' dirty feet that have been washed by her hair and bathes them in her perfume And what do you think people did? Do you think people are like, wow, that is amazing worship. We need to be more like that woman. No. The religious people, the one who invited Jesus specifically, looks to his buddies and said, if this guy actually was a prophet, if Jesus knew anything, he wouldn't be letting this happen. If he knew that this woman was a sinner, there's no way he would let this happen. And Jesus kind of overhears this, right? And he turns to his disciples. He turns to Peter and says, Peter, let me tell you a story. Two men were in debt. One owned, owed about 500 days wages to his employer. The other owed about 50. And he was a gracious man. And so this, this man forgave both people of their debts. One the 500, one the 50. Who do you think is going to be more thankful? Who do you think is going to love the forgiver more. And Peter, of course, as all of us would say, well, the person he forgave more, the person who was owed 500 and was forgiven. And Jesus says, absolutely. And this is what you're seeing with this woman at my feet. You are seeing somebody who has been forgiven much and therefore loves much. In Luke 7, 47, he ends his tale to Peter by saying, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Wow. That's a powerful story. That's a really cool story that I can't help but think about with the forgiveness of sins. But it does make me a little tense. It does make me worry a little bit, that story. Does this sound a little bit too convenient for this sinful woman? Like, she just shows up after a lifetime committed to doing things that we can't even talk about here this morning out loud, 
in the midst of all of these religious people who have made it their life goal to try and please God. And she's the one who's walking away with Jesus' blessing. She's the one walking away with forgiveness. She's the one walking away with Jesus' applause. That's interesting. And so would you say that this is a fair conclusion, right? That it appears Jesus just hands out forgiveness of sins like candy. So go ahead and do whatever you want, right? No, we know that doesn't really sit too well with us. But have you guys ever thought that before? Like, have you ever kind of practiced that mentality? Where it's like right before making a decision like that you think is wrong or sinful. Like, you know, like God probably wouldn't want you to do that. You kind of have that thought in the back of your mind like, Jesus is going to forgive me, right? Like, why am I fighting this temptation? Why am I trying not to sin if I know Jesus will just forgive me in the end? I know maybe all of us have thought that before. But this is what I think is happening. I think this woman, this sinner, who everybody knows her reputation, I think she knows something about Jesus that the religious people around here don't know. What is that thing? What's her big idea? Well, we'll have to wait to get there. But this morning we're going to dive into Ephesians 2 and unpack the theology of the forgiveness of sins. In Ephesians 2, we're going to find some amazing things. We're going to find that God loves to forgive sinful people. God loves to forgive sinful people. And in fact, no matter how much sin you guys brought into church today, like whatever kind of things are running through your mind, however good or bad your weekend has been so far, I want you guys to know as we get started that God, God can meet you with even more mercy this morning. Right? Like the probing question then is like, are you sinful enough this morning to actually receive the forgiveness of sins? Right? Like the person in your chair and the person on this stage are sinful people. Like we have mistakes. We are imperfect. You do not need to convince us of that, I'm sure. But this is good news that if you have sinned this morning, that is the only prerequisite needed to be forgiven. And that's great. So let's dive in together. Read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. The verses are going to be on the screen for you, but this is what it says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Stop right there, okay. What we just read might be some of the most offensive Bible <laughs> that you will ever hear, okay? If you felt that push against you a little bit, you're not alone, okay? It's kind of cool. Every semester um, in our college ministry, Salt Company, we have this class called Gospel 101. And one of the coolest parts about this class, uh, as we're going through this book, is it has you do surveys, right? And like you take these, these surveys as homework and you go to your classmates and you ask them these questions. And one of the questions is like, hey, on a scale of one to 10, how bad do you think people are? Like how, how bad is the human condition? And, uh, you know, it's no surprise when they ask people on a scale of one to 10, one being like humans are naturally evil. Like 
boom, out of the womb, evil. Um, or 10, no, humans are perfect. Or five, they're kind of just born neutral. It wouldn't surprise you that most college students would say more closely to five or 10. Like very few people um, kind of give the answer of like, oh yeah, humans are a one for sure. No, they're usually like, they're pretty much born neutral and then their decisions kind of lead them towards a 10 or lead them towards a one on that scale. But you see, Ephesians 2 doesn't give us much wiggle room on that question, does it? No, Ephesians 2, what does it say? Right away, look, you were dead. Dead. Strong words. In other words, before knowing Jesus, you were not thriving in your life. You were not even floating along indifferently. You were dead in your sin. You were absolutely void with no hope of true spiritual life at all before you knew God. And I think this is so interesting. The Bible, it's not making a distinction between us, right? From one person to another. From me to Hitler. It's not making any distinctions at all. It doesn't say that some sinners had more hope. It says that all of us were dead in our sins and our trespasses. Dead in sin. Not like free to explore everything you want in your life. But slaves led around by a hook of fleshly, sinful desire. Dead in sin, like children, following Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spiritual father that we all used to take after. What a terrible truth. That when left in our sin, we all fall impossibly short of the perfection of God. That's what Ephesians 2 is saying. And you know what? I think this woman in Luke 7, I think she knew that. I think she knew this truth. I think she knew just how bad it was. Like you didn't have to convince her that she was not worthy of God. You did not have to convince her that she was in need of mercy in her life and in her sin. This is our first point today, guys, that only the worst of sinners qualify for forgiveness. Only the worst of sinners qualify for forgiveness. And of course, the irony kind of in that being, no corpse is better off than another. Right? Think of it like this. A dead person on the floor of the ocean does not need a life raft thrown to them. They need a miraculous resuscitation. Right? What good, if you were a corpse at the bottom of the ocean, would somebody be just throwing a life raft? Like, good luck. Like, maybe you could swim. No, not at all. Ephesians 2 doesn't give us that hope that we can just swim ourselves to the life raft and save ourselves. And more than that, I mean, surely, if that miraculous resuscitation happens, surely no corpse thinks that they earned that saving, did they? No corpse thinks, well, because I'm prettier or better or have a better sense of humor or have tried harder than the other corpses, that's, where, that's why I'm at where I'm at today, right? Not at all, friends. When it comes to the forgiveness of sins, we in the church, we Christians should be the most humble of people. Right? Those of us who know God, who have seen his glory, we know how much we don't deserve him, right? Those who have met with him this morning, who have confronted him in worship, we know we do not deserve this relationship. But still, if we're being honest, if I'm being honest, I still look around and kind of like play God. 
Like, I still, like, maybe even doing those gospel one-on-one evangelistic surveys, I still think this person is more likely to be saved, or that person, or this person, why would I talk to them? I don't think they're as worthy of my time. I'm looking at other corpses as a previous corpse myself and I'm making judgment on them. And I think when I'm doing that, guys, I'm just forgetting what Ephesians 2 says. I'm forgetting who I used to be. Because notice, this is written to a church, Ephesians 2. Christians, this is important because we can never forget this. Because when I do remember my life before Christ, when I do remember my state before he met me, when I see my sin for what it actually is, I don't minimize it, but I actually see it for what it is, then and only then am I finally in a position to receive mercy. Look what is next in Ephesians 2. Kind of turns a corner for us. Then in verse 4, it says this. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. If what we read earlier was one of the hardest things you'll ever read, this might be the most refreshing two words that you will ever come across. But God. You were dead in your sins, but God. He made us alive. Just like Jesus was dead and was raised to new life and left his grave behind, so you too now, Christian, have received the same gift of life from God. You have left your grave behind. And so you too now, Christian, have received the same gift. He has raised you from a corpse to a living saint, a child of wrath now adopted into his family. But the question you have to ask that I'm asking at this point is why? Why would you do that? God, why would you save me? Well, the answer is in verse 4. It might not make sense to you, but the answer is in verse 4. It says nothing about you or me, but about God, that he is rich in mercy and he loves us. Did you catch that? The corpse earned nothing, but he has now received everything. And it's only because God loves you and has so much mercy that he can lavish it on whoever he pleases. Can you believe that that was you? You. It was me. <laughs> it blows my mind. It should blow our minds today. But those of us who willingly worked against God, who are following the ways of Satan himself, we are now recipients of the most undeserved forgiveness that you can imagine. If our dead sinful state was worse than we could imagine, man, this is better than we could ever imagine. Well, you notice a few things here in this passage that prove the lavish nature of God's mercy toward us. This might have been the funnest thing to write, like ever, okay? It's amazing what it says here. Like, look at verse four. It talks about this great love that he had for us. I want to emphasize the past tense nature of that. The love that he had for us. Right? Do you ever feel this pressure in your life that God will love you more 
once you get your act together. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, once you kind of finally get over that, that habit or whatever. Like, God tolerates you now, sure, but the person he really loves is the you that you're supposed to be. The you that you're going to become someday in the future. Well, Ephesians 2 destroys that. It destroys that. He loved the corpse. He loved you while you were dead. Romans 5a says that he died for you while you were still sinning. The worst version of you he loved. That's amazing. He loved you while you were a child of wrath. How much more does he love you now if you are his son or his daughter? All right, the second thing, this life that he is giving out, this gift of life, it's personal. It's very personal. Verse 5 says that you were raised with Christ. With Christ in the midst of trespasses. Okay, you notice that word trespass. Sometimes we hear the word sin, and it kind of just like washes over. It's like this impersonal, like, I broke a rule. Okay, I'm a sinner. I get it. Whatever. I broke the law. But trespass kind of gives an extra kick, doesn't it? Like, this is personal. This is like a person's property that we have infringed upon. This is a personal matter. We have sinned not just against a law, but against a lawgiver, against a person, a father, God. That's what a trespass is. Like, if a judge forgives a crime for somebody's sin, like, that's one thing. That'd be, wow, that that would shock us. Like, wow, he just showed mercy to this criminal. But how much more if the criminal committed a crime against the judge himself? That's where we're at with God. That's the God that we're dealing with here. I want you to notice this also, that we didn't earn this gift of forgiveness, right? We've said that. But that means we also can't lose it. Like, we didn't earn it, and so we cannot lose it. I want to emphasize kind of the future tense in verse 6. He kind of says, well, he does say, he raised us up. He raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places. And I'm looking around today, and I'm looking up here, and I'm saying, no, he didn't. Like, no, he didn't. I'm still here. What is he talking about? This is saying that our salvation, God's forgiveness of sins, is so final, so definitive, that our future is as good as set. That we cannot lose this amazing gospel that he saved us, and he also plans to share with us everything he has. What's a greater flaunt of mercy than God sitting us, broken people like me and you, on his throne with Jesus? I don't even get that, but that's awesome. Why did he do it? Well, the last thing we have to see here is that his kindness will never come to an end. His kindness will never come to an end. He saved you, verse 7 says, so that in the coming ages he might display these immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Pop quiz. These are fun. Okay. What does your life in heaven, 10,000 years from right now, what does your life in heaven 10,000 years from right now have in common with your life today? It's that you will just be beginning to dip your toe 
in the ocean of God's kindness. That there's no place you can go, there's no hole you can climb into, there's nowhere that you can escape this God's kindness toward you. His kindness toward you will never come to an end, and that includes today, Christian. If our first point was that only the worst of sinners qualify for forgiveness, and it's great news that our second point today is this, that God loves to save the worst of sinners. Right? Only the worst of sinners qualify for this forgiveness, but God loves to save the worst of sinners. You want to know the best Christmas gift I've ever given? Usually people talk about like a gift they've received. I'm going to brag a little bit today, okay? What's the best Christmas gift that you've ever given? Mine? Ready for it? It was a Blu-ray player. I bought my sister and her family a Blu-ray player. And you're probably thinking, wow, is this like 10, 12 years ago? No, it was like last year, okay? A Blu-ray player. Wow. I felt so cool watching them open that. And here we are, what, a year or two later, uh, they have not used it once. Because why would you buy a Blu-ray player when you have Netflix and Amazon and all that good stuff? Let me take a, a poll here. Raise your hands. Don't worry, it's not going to hurt my feelings. Have you guys ever given a better gift to somebody than a Blu-ray player? Okay. Some of good. That's it? Am I really like in the top 5% here of gift givers? No. Okay. I'm going to pretend all of you put your hands up. Why? Okay. Why have you given a better gift than a Blu-ray player? It's pretty simple. Because you have more money than me. That's it. That's probably the reason. God is a better gift giver because he has immeasurable riches. Okay? God can save the worst of sinners more specifically because he has the deepest pockets of mercy. They never run out. He's loaded with mercy. The only picture worthy of this that actually gives a good illustration of this mercy and his immeasurable riches is the cross. It's Jesus, it's the king of the universe who owns everything, who has glory and riches that you can never count, that you can never exhaust, and he is stripped, beaten, poor and alone, offering you everything he has. All out of his love for you. So the only question is, has he given you this amazing gift? Has he given you this amazing gift? Have you, by faith, reached out and taken hold of this life-altering offer? Have you said yes to Jesus? This is the gospel. Your sin traded for Jesus' riches. What an amazing exchange. Are you sinful enough to become a Christian today? This is great news that only the worst of sinners qualify for forgiveness, but God loves, he delights to save the worst of sinners. What more is there left to say? Well, what do we do now? That's probably a good question. As we land today, let's, let's finish up by reading Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, and see what we do now. It says, for you are saved by grace, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. 
So I don't know about you, but I have this like insatiable desire to need to feel like I earned every gift I've received. Okay, like even if when I get a gift, a great gift, I like to think, well, yeah, I earned this because I was a good enough friend to get it or I was a good enough son or whatever, et cetera, to receive this gift. In this passage, it ends emphatically with a big fat reminder that no, you aren't. They're like, I have earned nothing. Dead corpses don't swim to the life raft and dead sinners don't earn God's love. It doesn't let us walk away without remembering that. And yet, we are told here that even though we weren't saved by good works, that those of us who are saved live a life of good works. In sharp contrast with our life of walking in spiritual death, this is a new life of good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. And so if only the worst sinners can get forgiveness, and God loves to save the worst of us, then this is our final point. And now it's time to share what we have received. Now it's time to share what we have received. Okay, go back to our story that we started with in Luke 7. Do you think that that sinful woman from Luke 7 left Jesus' feet after being forgiven of her sins? Do you think she just went right back to work? In her line of work? Do you think that her life kind of just stayed on the exact same course and the path of her old ways. No, they didn't. Because Jesus said, those who are forgiven much, love much. There is a natural response, like a, like a literal change that happens supernaturally in the sinner when they are forgiven. They love much. Those who have had their lives transformed by the forgiveness of sins want others to share in that same forgiveness of sins. So they just want to forgive everybody, right? Or do they? Do you? Do I want that? When we say we believe in the forgiveness of sins, guys, that is amazing news for me. I don't need convinced that I need that. This is awesome. I can, I can accept that. I'm going to worship to that end today for sure. But what about when we're called to live lives now marked by Jesus and his mercy? We know there's transformative power in being forgiven, but what if God prepared you for a life of supernatural work, mirroring, mirroring that same mercy he showed to you and show it to others? Like what if no matter how bad it hurts to forgive people who definitely don't deserve it, what if that might be God's highest possible calling on your life? Like, okay, Veritas, this is cheesy, forgive me, but like we're living in a cancel culture and I think we are being called to create a forgiveness culture, to live that out here. Okay, how can we do that? This is not exhaustive, but here's maybe three little house rules for forgiveness that we can walk away with. Okay, three little house rules for forgiveness. First one, pretty straightforward. When somebody asks for forgiveness, you give it. Okay, if they ask for it, you give it. And this can be hard. You don't know the motives of the other person. Every situation is different. This can be hard. And it often looks like very difficult conversations with some very, very real relational tension. I know. 
whether it be you asking for forgiveness or vice versa, Jesus is very, very clear that we, the church, are about this. We are about this in this room. When he tells us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And in Matthew 6, he goes even further to say, if you don't forgive others their sins, you're not going to find forgiveness yourself. He's very serious about this. The forgiven life is a forgiving life as we remember first God's mercy toward us. Okay, two, kind of picks up a little bit. If they, and when I say they, I mean the people you're thinking of in your head. If they don't ask for it, if they don't ask for forgiveness, you give it. This is even harder, obviously. I want to be sensitive here this morning. There are many people in this room carrying in a lot of true, real pain. Okay, you have been wronged in evil ways. And there is no offer on the other end for forgiveness. There's nobody apologizing to you. Let me encourage you guys. When forgiving this person in your mind feels like it requires supernatural power, there's no way you could do it. It requires supernatural power. You're absolutely right. Forgiveness always requires supernatural power. A power that is now at your disposal if the Lord is with you. This might look like getting in a prayer closet, finding a place where you can cry out to God, clench your teeth, punch the ground if you have to, but over time, whether it be years or hours, opening your grip and in your heart before the Lord forgiving these people. I just want to encourage you guys to stay connected to the cross. To never stop coming back to Ephesians 2 and thinking about what Jesus did for you while you were sinning against him. I want to encourage you to never let bitterness take root in your heart. You might be carrying some serious pain. I want to say that's okay. Like Jesus loves to draw near to people who are in pain. He promises us that. But pain can be different from serious bitterness. And when pain does not meet forgiveness, we start to become bitter. And whether you can see it or not, it grows down like roots and is like poison. Even if they don't ask, we give it. And then finally, maybe the hardest of all, maybe not, be ready to keep forgiving. Okay, our final little house rule for forgiveness, be ready to keep re-forgiving, all right? Might be the hardest, but man, how powerful. How amazing could a pattern of forgiveness in our lives make God look? As his mercies are new to us every day, they never should stop at us, they should run through us. Where we are never the final destination of his mercy, we are just one stop on its way to others. And as we know from ourselves, our own kind of daily need for mistakes that we make, 
Daily need of forgiveness. We need that fresh glass of forgiveness every single day. Others will absolutely need it as, as well. Veritas, I just want to ask, how amazing would a culture of people be? How amazing would a culture of people be not quick to cancel one another, not quick to hold grudges until that person earns everything back from you, but a culture that taps into these immeasurable riches of God's mercy and claims them as our own and lets them run through our veins toward other people. What a vision that would be. I want to be a part of a culture like that. And this is our big idea this morning. That God is richer in mercy than you are in sin. God is richer in mercy than you are in sin. What is it that the sinful woman in Luke 7 knew that maybe the other people didn't? The religious people. I think this was it. That God was richer in mercy than you are in sin. She knew that she was sinful enough to be forgiven. And she knew he was merciful enough to meet her there. And so she got on her knees and she worshiped. And she loved much. Is this us? Let's pray. Jesus, I just want to confess that it is easy to come into a public place, a, a place that we're comfortable and routine at, at, at going to church and doing those things. And it's so easy just to minimize my own sin. But God, thank you for passages like Ephesians 2 that just give it to me bluntly and just say, no, this is actually how much need you are in, but also this is how amazing your God is. And so, Lord, thank you for meeting me in this passage. Thank you for meeting us, Veritas, in this passage today. God, I pray that there would be people in this room who fall at your feet this morning for the first time, that just accept the mercy that you offer today, that you are richer in mercy than we are in sin. And God, I pray that all of us would just be washed over by Lamentations 3 that says, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. For his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God, thank you that today is another new morning of your mercy. Help us drink deep of your grace. In your name.